Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, music critic and historian Ted Joya will join us to talk about his fascinating new book, Music, A Subversive History. It's published by Basic Books. You can find a link in the description, or you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Ted's written nearly a dozen other books on music, especially on jazz, and he's published two wonderful essays for City Journal, including Jazz Central, about how New York City became the focal point of that American art form, and the West Coast Jazz Revival about California's jazz resurgence right now. Uh, The conversation is a little bit different from what we usually talk about on 10 Blocks, but it's a great book, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. We'll take a quick break and be back with Ted Joya after the music. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. On the phone with us is Ted Joya. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ted Joya, and that's spelled G-I-O-I-A. His latest book is called Music, A Subversive History. We'll link to it in the description, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, Ted, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Brian, for inviting me. You've written a number of great books on music, music, including How to Listen to Jazz, which for me was the best introduction uh, to jazz music I've I've ever come across. Uh, But this this new book, which you've been writing, as you note uh, in the introduction, for 25 years, has a scope that goes beyond anything you've done before. It ranges from the Neolithic era to hip-hop by way of uh, medieval madrigals and the blues. A recurring theme in this 4,000-year history, which gives you your subtitle, A Subversive History, is that music has always been tied to deep connections with love and violence. So, so let's start at the beginning. What do you mean when you see the origin of music as a force of creative destruction? Well, many of us tend to think of music as a kind of entertainment or diversion, uh, and of course, we realize that it's also a source of artistry and, and a source of high culture. But when you really dig into the, the history and the effects of music, you begin to realize it's almost more a physiological force than it is a cultural artifact. We now understand how much music affects our body in ways that we really didn't realize 20, 30 years ago. And it's unlike other art forms. It's not like a statue or a work of architecture or a painting. Music changes everything. The rhythms of the music we listen to change our brain rhythms. Our body chemistry changes. Hormones are released that, that, that push us into action. And this is why throughout history, music has had a much closer connection than most people realize all sorts of, of, of dark and dangerous things, sexuality, violence, trance, ecstasy, altered states of consciousness. One of the things my music history book did was bring these out into the open because in many regards these are seen as shameful or embarrassing connections of music. But if you don't understand how music impacts our physiology and how we deal with the world and the people around us in these powerful ways, you can't really understand the true history of music. 
Even the symphony orchestra, you point out, which we see as representing a very high art form, has a link with a kind of primitive violence. Uh, uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, I found that fascinating. Just in the well, way that's a great. That's a great example. Uh, we tend to think of the symphony orchestra as the, the epitome of establishment music, respectable. Uh, it, it's, it's really at, at the highest peak of our, our cultural aspirations. But in fact, if you dig into the history of the symphony orchestra, virtually every instrument in the orchestra originated in something bloody and violent. Really, you have to go back to, to hunter-gatherers. And the first horns were animal horns. The musical bow was originally the hunter's bow. You killed the animal. You took the horn. You, you cleaned it up. You turned it into a musical instrument. They made flutes out of bones. The strings on the string instruments were the guts. They were the intestines of the animal you killed. Again and again, every aspect of music, the, the drum that took the hide of the animal, and the idea was that the drum now possessed the magical power of the animal. I mean, these are extraordinary things. And it's amazing to look at the process by which they end up in the symphony orchestra, which seems very dignified and respectable, but it originates in blood and violence. It's fascinating. You, you note uh, uh, the deep association that you just mentioned between music or with music and ritual and uh, ecstatic experience. And wherever ecstatic experience has been observed with trances and things like that, music is, is part of the experience. Yet music has also been viewed, you note, from Pythagoras on as an expression of mathematical truths. Could you describe that tension? Well, there's a battle. There's a battle that's been going on in our musical lives for at least 2,500 years. And it's something that's almost never discussed or described in music history books. But when you dig into it, you see that there are two kinds of music. And this division really came out of ancient Greece. It started with Pythagoras, who wanted to create a music of order, of discipline, of reducing everything to mathematics. You know, he created the first guides to scales. Every note had to be in tune. There were certain notes that you played. There were other notes you didn't play. And it was regimented. It was ordered. It was controlled. And this really led into our Western tradition, where you always play in tune. I mean, the orchestra always starts by tuning. We take this for granted. You go to the orchestra, and they all tune. And they play the notes specifically in tune, dead center on the tone. But there's this other tradition of music that's very different. It's not so orderly. It's linked to magic. It's linked to superstition. It's linked to ecstasy, falling into a trance. Uh, it doesn't have this kind of controlled mathematical precision. There are a lot of notes there that aren't played in tune. Now, for the most of recorded history... That side of music was hidden from view. I mean, it always existed, but it was left out of the history books. One of the things I show in my, my history book is that there's this whole tradition of music that was censored. It was prohibited. Now, it did flourish in some places. You know, for example, in Africa, they never reduced music to mathematics. So they never played the notes perfectly in tune. And that's actually what created the greatest revolution in music in the 20th century with the blues, where African-American musicians would bend notes. They'd play notes in the blues you couldn't write down because our notational systems couldn't allow them. So this is an extraordinary tension. In many ways, it's the most fundamental tension in musicology and music history, but it's one that's almost never even mentioned by the conventional history books. Plato, as you know, recognized the power of music, and in the Republic, 
the argument was was made that really music should be heavily regulated, if not completely suppressed by the state. Uh, what disturbed him so, especially about lamentations? It's interesting. When you read Plato, many people are confused because sometimes he seems very afraid of music, and then a few pages later he'll say that music needs to be an essential part of education. Uh, music is essential to the, the well-governed republic. And we try to figure out what's going on here. Does he love it or does he hate it? But you see, Plato understood full well that there were these two types of music. And there was a kind of music he liked, which was orderly. It was disciplined. It created a, a, a coherent society when everybody marched in the same direction. But Plato understood there was a very different kind of music that tapped into very powerful feelings and emotions. And this is the kind I'm telling you about that has been written out of the, the history books. And, and it was feared, and, and it was feared because they understood, in many ways, this was the most powerful music. Plato associated it with women. And it really is linked to what I call the three L's. And these are interesting. It's three styles of music traditionally linked with women. The lullaby, the love song, and the lament. And these are the kinds of music that really weren't preserved. I mean, we know for a fact there must have been tens of thousands of lullabies sung every day throughout history, but no one wanted to preserve these. These were songs that were considered dangerous because they tapped into such powerful feelings. And it's interesting, even as, as regimes change and philosophies change, these were still feared. You know, a thousand years after Plato, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church was trying to prohibit laments. Now, why did they fear laments? But they understood full well that, that this was a kind of song that had so much power and was difficult to control. So this is, once again, there's this hidden side of music. It's left out of the conventional accounts, but if you don't understand it, you really don't understand the musical life of culture, both in the past and in the current day. The French economist Jacques Attali wrote a fascinating study a few, some years ago, I think it was the late 70s, called Noise, A Political Economy of Music, and in that book, he, he shows how music throughout history has been a kind of anticipatory force in which you can read the, the direction of the future. Uh, your book offers a striking example of this, I thought, with the relationship between songs and then singers, and that changes over time, right? Well, we tend to assume that every song is the personal expression of the singer, and we just take that for granted. You turn on the radio, and whether you're listening to Frank Sinatra or Joni Mitchell or Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga, you understand the singer is using the songs as a vehicle of self-expression. What we don't understand is this wasn't always true, and this was a powerful change. In fact, you could say that music is the most uh, neglected source of expansion of human freedom and civil liberties in history. People don't realize how powerful it is when people started singing about themselves. And this was, was prohibited. It was fought against because it was an understanding that this was an expansion of your freedom if you could, if you could sing what you felt. And, and it had an amazing impact on the audience. So you go back in history trying to understand when did this first happen. And it's pretty clear now this happened in ancient Egypt in a village called Deir el-Medina, which is the source we have of the first Egyptian love songs, where people would talk about personal emotions. Now, you don't tend to think of a love song as a political song, but it was. This was a very powerful thing to do, and I think it's no coincidence 
at this same village in Egypt where the artisans who worked on the pyramids lived was the site of the first labor strike. It was the first worker uprising. And, and many people would look at this and, and not understand. They would think this was a coincidence. But in fact, it is no coincidence that the first songs of personal expression also took place in the very same location where people began to assert for more freedoms in their work life and in their political life. The, uh, the book chronicles the emergence of the idea of, or the reality of, an audience, the audience for music. Uh, when did that happen, and when did the emergence of a kind of music business take place? Well, some people will tell you that the audience was always there, that every music has an audience, and that musicians always play to the audience. But in fact, once again, this is a, uh, a gross misunderstanding, because for the longest time, you didn't sing to please an audience. You sang to please the authorities, or God, or the king, or to uh, involve yourself in a, in a communal ritual. The idea of, of pleasing an audience happened only very slowly. And, and probably really the breakthrough came around the time of the Renaissance, when all of a sudden the audience became the ultimate arbiter of what was good or bad in music. If you wanted to understand whether your song was any good, you played it for an audience and their response told you. But that wasn't true for most of human history. And, and once again, it's, it's an extraordinary expansion of, of human autonomy, personal freedom, is to have the people, the common people, being able to make these decisions. And once again, music anticipates the future. Uh, you had this kind of, of expansion of, of the rights of the people in music long before it becomes enshrined in political institutions. You describe the engine room of music history uh, a kind of recurring dialectic in which the institutional power brokers in music, I guess you would call them, constantly need infusions of energy from outsiders. And, and this, uh, this shift occurs again and again, you show, from religious music to the classical music tradition right up to contemporary rock and roll, right? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful force. And when I tell people that music history is made by outsiders, they can instinctively understand it because they've seen it in their own lifetimes. We all have. Mm -hmm. The most powerful music of our lifetimes, whether you're a fan of hip-hop or punk rock or outlaw country, it's, it's not insider music, it's the music of the outsiders. Uh, what people don't realize is, first of all, this has been going on for, for, for centuries and thousands of years, but the most important part is the history is distorted because all of these outsiders eventually become mainstreamed and legitimized, and the legitimization itself is, is, a, is a distortion. So what you have again and again is the outsider is cleaned up, made respectable, because the insiders need the power of this music. This is the most amazing part of it. Music is disruptive to the authorities, but the authorities itself need this. They need this infusion of energy. I mean, this plays out in the Daily News. I mean, for example, just a few weeks ago, someone released a hip-hop song in Thailand that criticized the government. And this really shook up the authorities there. And they decided they needed to release their own hip-hop song. So the, the, the government actually issued its own hip-hop song, which, as you can expect, was, was mocked and ridiculed. But it's the same dynamic. The insiders need that power of music, and they try to take it over for themselves. 
And that is the single biggest reason why the history books are distorted, because it's the insiders writing the account from their perspective after they've cleaned up this music. When you reach more recent musical history in your book, especially in America, the voice of black musicians and singers becomes really more and more the story of American music. Uh, the black population of the Americas, almost all of them the descendants of slaves, would reinvent popular music again and again and again. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, this is a classic example where we understand something from our own experience, but we don't realize how deeply rooted it is in history. American music during the 20th century came to dominate the whole world. Everybody listened to it, and it was really for just one reason. It was because of the disruptive power and energy infused into the music from the black population. So these were the slaves or the descendants of slaves are what gave energy to American music. Now, the, where it becomes interesting is when you see how this repeats a pattern that's been going on again for thousands of years. I mean, you go back to ancient Greece. This is very funny. If you're a music student, the first thing you're taught are the musical modes. These are the scales, and they all have names. There's the Phrygian mode. There's the Lydian mode. But nobody tells you that the Lydians and the Phrygians were the Greek slaves. And they came up with these exciting sounds. These are the ones that Plato feared. These were the prohibited modes. And they came from the slave population. Then you see the same thing in Rome. In ancient Rome, they relied on slaves for their music making. That's why it was so scandalous that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. It's not that, that uh, Rome was burning was the scandal. It was that the emperor was playing music, which was once again associated with the outsider and the slave. And then you see the same thing in medieval times. You know, the whole Western love song tradition, as I show in my book, was anticipated by the, the, the female slaves of the Islamic world. So when you get to the 20th century, and all of a sudden the descendants of slaves and the marginalized outsider class transforms things, this was just a repetition of a longstanding theme. And that leads to the question is, why is this? And what you understand eventually is that the slave and the outsider are always a source of innovation because they have no vested interest in the status quo. They have no vested interest in preserving the tradition. They want to shake things up because the, the system does not favor them, so they're the first to question it. And so that's, it's not coincidence, but this is something we should expect again and again in, in musical history, even in the future, that it's the outsider, it's the marginalized, it's the dispossessed, it's the rowdy that are the creators of musical innovation. Marshall McLuhan, the media theorist, famously said, the medium is the message. You offer a variation in your book, the medium makes the music. What did you mean by that? Well, it's surprising how often new technologies completely change how people sing or perform music, and that there's this interaction between the two. Um, let me give you just uh, you know, a few examples. If you go back in the 1920s, uh, at the end of the 1920s, there was this whole new style of singing that emerged called crooning, which was a much more whispering, conversational voice. But it only happened because new microphones developed that allowed you to, to, to sing in that kind of way. It's interesting. If you compare love songs recorded in 1925 with those recorded in 1935, you'd be amazed at the difference. The love songs from the 1920s, the, people are shouting. <laughs> it, sounds like an, it doesn't sound like a romance. It sounds like an argument. And they had to, because that was the technology. But then the microphone comes, and all of a sudden you could have this uh, Bing Crosby kind of voice that was very conversational and understated. 
And that was a completely new way of singing. So the, the technology changed the music and, and working interactively. And this has happened almost with every passing decade. I mean, the long-playing album changed how people conceived of music. And nowadays we're living through this new rebellion where we're told that streaming and algorithms and curated playlists are going to change everything. And the music changes. You know, how people compose songs in the year 2019 is different because of streaming platforms. You have to keep people on for like 20, 25 seconds to cut your royalties. <laughs> everything goes in the front of the song. There's no lingering introductions anymore. Everything is to the point. Uh, so this is, is the world we live in, where music and technology in a way are at war, but they also cooperate. And whenever new technology comes along, musicians find some way of repurposing it for their own ends. Just to come full circle and a last question, there's so much more that could be talked about, but we're, we're almost out of time. Um, let me conclude with a, a mention of your chapter, which draws on the philosopher René Girard and his, uh, his book, Violence and the Sacred. It talks about music and sacrificial ritual and and interprets some of the experience of rock and post-rock music through that lens. Would you elaborate a little bit on that, too? Well, René Girard is, is one of the most amazing thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, and he had these theories that just seem, with the passing of time, have more relevance. Uh, you know, even you know, Peter Thiel said he made a billion dollars investing in Facebook because he took a class from René Girard. Yes. who told him that a major force in human history is, is imitation, that we do things not because they're rational or because they, they fit in with our life plan. We imitate what other people do. And, and Deal said, well, I, can, I see this Facebook. This is perfect. I'll, I'll invest there. But René Girard had this concept of the sacrificial ritual, that one of the ways you diffuse violence in society is by picking a scapegoat almost arbitrarily, and you channel the violence into that, often in a ritualized format. Now, curiously enough, René Girard doesn't mention rock music at all, but he was writing his book during the whole rise of, the, of, the, of rock at the end of the 60s. And if you look at rock, it's like that. I mean, you have, I mean, the, the, the musicians would destroy their instruments on stage. I mean, it's a sacrificial ritual. Sometimes there was Pete, violence. Pete Townsend, then, yes, uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix setting fire to his guitar. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes there was violence directed against the musicians or in the audience. I mean, read about the Sex Pistols' last concert at Winterland. I mean, it, it's, it's a sacrificial ritual. The funny thing is, Gerard himself didn't see this. I mean, he never mentioned uh, rock music at all in his book. But in fact, once you understand, first of all, the historic linkage to violence throughout music, and, and then what was happening in the late 1960s, you understand how closely integrated rock was to this long history of violent rituals. Thanks very much, Ted. The, the book is called Music, a Subversive History. You can find a link in the description. Find it again wherever books are sold. Follow Ted Joya on Twitter, at Ted Joya. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter, at City Journal, or on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Ted Joya, for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.